This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book under the covering title Christian Fundamentals and the present series the Old Testament background to the second coming. And this evening we are considering the book of Daniel. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together and those of you who are listening to this tape if you care to join us will you switch off for a little while and read the 24th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. This evening, I'm afraid of venturing to undertake something which is almost presumption, and that is to pack in the limited space of 40 minutes some sort of presentation of the book of Daniel that will justify our gathering. Those of you who are listening to this tape recording and would wish to have a fuller exposition of the prophecies of Daniel, you will find on the list that we have about five such tapes and we commend them to you. <coughs> In this series, we are seeking to construct from the scriptures some sort of Old Testament background against which, which we can put the New Testament statements concerning the second coming of Christ. Uh, with regard to Daniel, you have already read in Matthew 24, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Two things are said there, quoting from Daniel as though it is going to be fulfilled, Christ said that, and he doesn't merely say Daniel, but he says Daniel the prophet. And in the Gospel according to Matthew, he says Jonah the prophet. The two prophets against whom there's been a certain amount of antipathy because both Jonah and Daniel had to do with the Gentiles. So the people of Israel were not quite happy about Jonah and Daniel. So our Lord says, Jonah the prophet. Daniel the prophet. We're thankful for these small verses. They all pile up together as a witness. And then in chapter 26, verses 63 and 64, Daniel again is quoted. But Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God, that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power, and coming in the clouds of heaven. And they said that was blasphemy, for he was quoting the prophecy of the book of Daniel. <coughs> Now, if you will turn to the book of Daniel and notice the opening, the first chapter and the first verse, you get a very important note struck with regard to time. I'm not dealing so much with chronology, because that can come and that can go. Uh, there is nobody who would be able to stand up and take an oath and hope to carry it off that this is the year 1959. It's near enough, somewhere about that. Uh, but here we have a definite note struck in Daniel, the first uh, two verses. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave. Notice that it doesn't say Nebuchadnezzar took. This is a distinct act of God. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God and so on. Now, if you will turn, keep the book of Daniel with your finger, turn to Jeremiah 25, 
Jeremiah 25, and you'll see that this is also given here. Jeremiah 25, 1. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. You notice one says the third year, Daniel. Jeremiah says the fourth year. Uh, some people have had a trouble over that. But you see, when Nebuchadnezzar set out on his conquest, it was the third year. And by the time he got there and did it, it was the fourth year. Well, there's no doubt about it. People know these things in ordinary, everyday circumstances, but they boggle at them and think, oh, it's a slip in the book. No slip, friends. It's all accounted for. But the point which is important to us is that here is the beginning of the time of the Gentiles. In that fourth year of Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar is now the recognized ruler of the whole wide world. He never ruled over the whole wide world, but that was given to him. All people, nations and languages, wherever they live, he was only limited by his own inability, but that was given to him. So, if we know the date of that um, period, we begin to say, now that's when the time of the Gentiles began. But it doesn't matter, because all the dates in the world will neither influence one way or another the integrity of this book. An outstanding characteristic of the times of the Gentiles is given to us in Luke 21-24. Luke 21, 24. It says in verse 22, For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. We had those words read just now. For there shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down to the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And that's true to this day. Israel are back in their land. They call themselves, you know, distinctly Israeli, which doesn't mean Israel. It means the nation of Israel, the eye on the end, claiming nationhood. But their city is divided with barbed wire and belongs to two people. They're not yet a, a, a sovereign nation. Jerusalem is trodden down and will be so until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. <coughs> well now let's come to the actual book itself, the book of Daniel. You will observe before you this outline, the structure. Of course there's much that could be filled in. These are just the bare bones. But I think there are enough to help us to realize that here is another book that has got the seal of God upon it. Will you notice, first of all, that we have the book of Daniel divided into two parts. First of all, there's the historic statements. They're all past. Daniel and his friends have already lived and died. This is ancient history. And then it changes to future prophecy. Now, there's a reason for that. I don't know whether you remember in looking at the prophecy of Isaiah, we found there was one set of prophecies in chapters 1 to 35. There was another set of prophecies in chapter 40 to 66. And in the middle, the other verses that were 
not prophetic, were historic. They were speaking about what had already happened in the days of Hezekiah, when Sennacherib was there boasting and suddenly was sent back with a hook in his nose, as God said. Don't you see the reason? What God has done, he can do. Anybody could stand up and make prophecies that were going to take place in two or three thousand years' time. Well, I could have a good go at it. And who's going to say I'm right or wrong? But you see, the God who made the prophecies was the God who had done those very things to that very people. And so he said, what I did then in a limited way I can do in a vaster scale when the time comes. So we're thankful that the prophetic teaching is interwoven with historic fact and the two march together. Prophecy is only history foretold before the time comes. Now will you notice the way in which it opens? We have in chapter 1 and 2 a dream, which is characteristic, of course, of this book, the image that Daniel saw. And Nebuchadnezzar was told by Daniel, Thou art this head of gold. And dominion was given unto him, and according to the first verse, the Lord gave. The first two verses, the Lord gave to Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't take it. This is the beginning of Gentile dominion. And that goes right the way through until at last, the stone strikes the image and it is broken to pieces and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. We must go back to that if time permits presently. But now when you look from that first opening of the historic section to the first opening of the prophetic section, chapter 7. Now here we have in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, a dream and a vision. And in this vision, it says in verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and dominion was given unto him, verse 14. Is this accidental? That it starts with dominion given to the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, the Gentile, and the prophecy says, and now we are going to change the point of view. Here's another head of gold, the true one. Here's another vision of dominion, the real one. And it's given unto him. Oh, I say this as a bit of a thrill, if once you say, ah, we are started on this again. Here's the book speaking with no uncertain sound. And there was given him dominion. So we've got the two. Now we go back to chapter 3. You know that after Nebuchadnezzar had had that dream and was told by Daniel that he had a head of gold, that head of gold began to swell. He began to think, I'm somebody. In fact, he's recorded. And it is recorded in Scripture. Is not this great Babylon that I have built in while he spoke the words, the voice was of an angel sounded and he was driven out. A shamed man. But here he was. So he commands that a great statue should be built. And everybody should be compelled to fall down and worship. Accompanied by I'll read it once, verse 5, that at the time he hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbuck, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music. Music as they've got a lot to play in these ceremonials, and uh, soothing savage breasts, stirring up all sorts of feelings, but they may not have anything to do with the Spirit of God. I do remember one person who read this, it comes several times in this chapter, when he got to the last one, he says, the orchestra as before, and went on. Uh, that's just in passing. 
But you can see some of these instruments in the British Museum in connection with the Assyrian Gallery. If you, if you pass through, you'll see, I think, the dulcimer quite plainly. Well, now, there we have the fiery furnace. Those who would not bow down to that image were threatened by Nebuchadnezzar that they would be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And I always like to remember these words that come in chapter 3. Verse 15. Now, if you be ready, that at the, what time you have the orchestra as before, if you shall not worship, you shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace, and who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. Sometimes there comes a moment when it's right to be rude. In the presence of a king, it's right to have a certain amount of courtesy, a certain amount of recognition of his position. None of us have any warrant to say, oh, Jack's as good as his master, because someone said, if Jack's as good as his master, he must be ten times better. But there comes a moment when all that goes to the wind, like the Apostle Paul writing to the Galatians, he spoke about Peter, James and John, who seemed to be somewhat, because they were withstanding the truth. So these men said, <coughs> we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace that's so far. Now can you go with the next step with them, friends? They said, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king, but if not, <coughs> you see, that's what faith, where faith comes in. It's all very well to know you've got an absolute cast iron guarantee. Well, anybody can rest on that. But supposing the will of God was you should go through it. They said, if not, be it known unto the king that we will not serve thy gods. And then they were cast into the furnace. And we are told that when Nebuchadnezzar looked into that furnace, he said, verse 24, the king was astonished and said, did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered, said unto the king, true O king. He answered and said, and lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. When he explains what he means, he says, God hath sent his angel. But there it is, the fourth was like the Son of God. Now when you notice, a fiery furnace, the Son of God, and then a proclamation, verse 29, to every people, nation and language, now, is this accidental? <coughs> but we come down to the next installment, chapter 7 and chapter 8. A fiery stream issued from before him. The beast was taken and cast into the burning flame, and one like unto the Son of Man received dominion, and all people, nations, and languages serve him. Is that accidental? That you've got the two. The burning fire of Nebuchadnezzar against the truth of God the burning fire of God against the enemies of truth. The, the form like unto the Son of God in both cases, and the proclamation to all peoples, nations, and languages. Then we come to the fourth chapter, back again in our story. It's something, I think, to be wondered at. I have a feeling that if you had a company of the 
most well-equipped and trained Christian people and uh, took them off their guard and said, would you give me the names of all those who have written scripture, portions of scripture or books? They go, oh, Moses, Joshua and all these, right through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and they miss out Nebuchadnezzar. Do you know Nebuchadnezzar has written a complete chapter all to himself? He didn't write it in this book, but it's put in this book word for word with what Nebuchadnezzar himself said. Nebuchadnezzar the king, unto all people, nations and languages, that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath walked toward me. And that man tells you that he was suddenly driven out a sort of a mania seized him, a, a disease of the mind as well as the body, and for seven times it went over him. He was driven out from his court and his kingly authority, and he was like a, a wild beast, or at least a beast of the field. I think they call the disease lycanthropy, but whether it was that or that or not, it doesn't matter. Here's this man telling you what happened to him. And so we find, it says, uh, let, in verse 16, let his heart be changed from man's, and let a beast's heart be given unto him, and let seven times pass over him. And then, the reason for that is, to the intent that the living may know, I'm reading from verse 17, that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will, and setteth up over it the basest of men. And so he goes right through this chapter until you get these blessed words in verse 36. And at the same time my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, mine honour and brightness returned unto me, and my counsellors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honour the king of heaven, all whose works are truth, and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. Am I wrong in saying that I hope one day to be able to meet Nebuchadnezzar as a saved man somewhere in God's kingdom? That man has made an absolutely extraordinary confession for a despot living in those days. In the ordinary way he would have been covered up and nothing said. This has been an open confession. And in passing, you'll notice the reference to the Most High God and in the book of Ezra, the God of heaven and the King of heaven, and in Daniel, uh, Nehemiah, similar references. Now, instead of that being a very blessed thought, it indicates God is absent. He is not called the God of heaven or the King of heaven when Israel are on the earth and being blessed. He's called the King of heaven when it's the heavens do rule, instead of ruling on the earth, because that is more or less <coughs> what was happening here. <coughs> so I've got against that in this fourth chapter the seven times whatever the period may mean and madness now if you look down here we have uh, under the same letter chapter 9 70 times 7 and restoration now you know that is one of the most difficult passages in the prophets and it would be very foolish on my part to attempt to analyze it. I'm only just remarking to you that there it comes. And this 
70 times 7 arose out of a very fine tray in Daniel's character because although he was a prophet, we are told in chapter 9, verse 2, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So although Daniel was a prophet, he still read the scriptures. And now we are not prophets. How much more than we should read the scriptures? <coughs> and he observed that the 70 years were nearly up. And so the man immediately prayed with regard to it. What's going to happen to thy people and thy city? And as a consequence, the angel, Gabriel, appeared unto Daniel at the end of his prayer and says in verse 23, At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. Seventy weeks. Now, you must not think of a week of days. The word week is a translation of a Hebrew word that means a group of seven, whatever it is. You could go into a shop in the days of Daniel or Isaiah and ask for a week of oranges. And they wouldn't look you up and down because a week meant seven. It's a week of days or months or years. In chapter uh, 10, it says, uh, verse um, 2, In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks, and the margin says, weeks of days. So it's putting it right there, that's three just ordinary weeks of days. Whereas these 70 weeks are 70 times 7. And we are told, verse 26, after the building of the wall, and after three score and two weeks, shall Messiah be cut off, and not for himself. And so we have this abomination, which is spoken by Daniel the prophet, mentioned in um, the last verse. The overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. I always remember speaking in the open air, down the back of Petticoat Lane, as it's called, many, many years ago, to a great company of mixed Jews and Gentiles, such a crowd you couldn't see the end of them. because I was asking for trouble, and I very often got it. But in this particular case, occasion, I was not molested, and there was a moment of very solemn silence, because a Jew interrupted me, and he said, you are speaking from the Protestant Bible. But I said, friend, I'm a Gentile, and I'm only just beginning to find my way through your Hebrew Bible, but I base all I believe on your book. Have you got a Hebrew Bible? He said, yes. I said, where is it? He said, I got it at home. So I said, how long will it take you to fetch it? He said, five minutes. So I said to the crowd, shall we wait? Of course they did, yes. So sure enough, this Jew came back with a Bible nearly as big as himself. I said, now you find Daniel the ninth chapter <coughs> and verse 26 and read that sentence out again. So he found it and he read, Yekoresh Mishiach the Anglo. Mishiach, of course, was the true pronunciation of the word Messiah. We have not got the gutturals they have. And he looked at me like this. He says, I've never read that before. 
And I said, while you let your rabbi forbid you to read any computation of the days of the Messiah, you mustn't read Daniel 9, you mustn't read Isaiah 53, you never will. And for a moment, there was just a solemn moment of hush. Then it all broke out again. But there it is. They are blinded, their eyes are closed, and those in authority see to it that they are not enlightened. But one day they will. Now this chapter, of course, is a most intensely difficult one, but a wonderful prophecy. For it leads us to the very time that Christ was born, it covers the acts of the apostles and stops, and then it goes on to the concluding weeks of this period, and the most important week of the lot is the last one. In the midst of that week, he breaks the covenant, and that is three years and a half of the Great Tribulation, which is mentioned in more parts of the New Testament. The Great Tribulation, three years and a half. It's, it's spoken of cryptically as time, times, and a dividing of time, or time, times, and half a time. Uh, but uh, we'll have to let that go, because otherwise we should not get through without analysis. So there we've had the seven times of madness, balanced by the 70 times seven of restoration. Now we come to the member governing chapter 5, and we have writing explained. Now most of us know the story of Belshazzar's feast and while he was there feasting with the um, very sacred vessels of the temple being used in an idolatrous feast a finger of a man was suddenly seen writing on the plaster of the wall and they, they were all very afraid And at last Daniel was brought, he wasn't there, he was brought. And he interpreted and read the words on the wall. You'll find them in Daniel 5, verse 25. But this is the writing that was written. Mili, Mili, Kiku, Eufasi. This is the interpretation of the Mili. And to this very day the word is used for a month. And it means to number. So he said, numbered. God of numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tegel. Now that is the Chaldaic way of saying a shekel. And both words mean some money that you weigh. So the slang expression weigh out, which you ought not to use in polite society today, goes back to the fact that you have to weigh your money. And so we've got now Tegel. Thou art weighed in the balances and are found wanting. Now, a good many have a difficulty over the next. They say periods. But it doesn't say periods, it says you fasted. Well, you is simply the word and. And in the ordinary way, you don't have to tell the person what and means, do you? So you take that away. Well, when you take and away in the Hebrew, you take the letter H away. So the PH becomes P. And inasmuch as it's the plural, well, you don't lift out the word plural from a dictionary, you just take the singular. So on the wall it said, and plural passing. But when I'm telling you what it means, peeries means two things. It's a play on words. It means to be divided. Your kingdom should be divided. But peeries is also the word that meant a Persian. So it was prophetic. The same as though we would say, suddenly on the walls of Buckingham Palace we saw the word, yes, your kingdom is scotched and it's given to the Scots. You see, like that. Because I don't think it's going to happen, but you never know. Well, there it is. Verse 30. 
Oh, one, one, one more point. Verse 29. Then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet, and put a chain of gold about his neck, and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler of the kingdom. In the kingdom. No word there to tell you how true it is, is it? Why the third ruler in the kingdom? Why? Because we have evidence. Now, written evidence that Belshazzar's father was away on a military expedition and he, like the Prince of Wales, was left to rule in his stead so he couldn't give him the second ruler. He was the second ruler in the kingdom. And yet these crazy people who are said to be critics, they said, the Bible's untrue. There's no such king as Belshazzar. No. They were admitting ignorance. The poorest peasant knew more about archaeology than the greatest scholars. They said, he's not known. And suddenly they dig up from the bottom of a temple a prayer for Nabonidus of Nabonidus, the father of Belshazzar, his son, the king. And the prayer was that his son, Belshazzar, should be kept from all sin and he should live a long life. And a poor wretch, he wasn't kept from sin and he died young. But Belshazzar, it makes me think also of an incident when I was in the British Museum it's a place that can give you a very tired feeling and it can give you a strong longing for a cup of tea. Of course, that's very lowbrow. But I saw two ladies and if they were not saying those two words, one was saying for all she was worth silently, oh, my poor feet. And the other was saying, what wouldn't I give for a cup of tea? So I ventured, which is very wrong of me. I said, now I'm not supposed to speak to you ladies in public. I know what you're feeling like. Do you know behind your head is one of the most priceless exhibits in... Oh, they said, what? I said, there's the prayer of the father of Nebuchadnezzar and his name is the king of the sun. Oh, my. Well, then I gave him a little bit more after that. What a priceless witness there is in the British Museum to the wonder and integrity of the word of God. And yet, how many bother? So there it is. We have the writing uh, explained on the wall. The hand is seen, and Belshazzar's doom, and Darius the Mede takes the kingdom at the end of the chapter. Well, now let's come down to the same letter, uh, D. Here we have chapters 10 and 11. And at the end of chapter 10, we have these words. Michael the prince, the archangel is speaking, and he said, Verse 19, O man greatly beloved, fear not, peace be unto thee, be strong, yea, be strong. And when he had spoken unto, he, unto me, I was strengthened, and said, Let my Lord speak, for thou hast strengthened me. Then said he, Knowest thou wherefore I come unto thee? And now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia? And when I am gone forth to the prince of Grecia, the prince of Grecia shall come. These princes are angels, and we are told, that they were so strong that they withstood the messenger from heaven for 21 days until Michael came. That gives you some idea of the spiritual powers that are at the right hand of kings in the Gentile world today. Here was the prince of Greece, the prince of Persia, antagonistic to the purpose of God and seeking to prevent a message coming through. And so it says, and when I am gone, forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. But, he comes back again to his first thought, I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth. And there is none that holdeth with me in these things but Michael, your prince. 
I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth. He's come to make that writing plain and understood. So you see, the writing, meaning, meaning, tikkun, you fasting, has to be interpreted, and now he says, I've come to make you understand the writing. The same word is used, scripture is writing, same word. It could have said the writing, but it says the scripture. Now are these accidental? The very words in their right place, just echoing point by point history and prophecy. And then at uh, the end, Darius the Mede comes into the story, chapter 11, 1, also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I even, I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. Continuing the narrative. Even the names of the Assyrian kings uh, come, in the, the Persian kings come in the right place. Well now, the next thing is chapter 6 in Daniel, the den of lions. And you may remember in the, the image of Daniel, the head of gold was followed by the breast of silver. Silver is less value than gold, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar was told by Daniel that after him should come a kingdom inferior to him, and in the succeeding chapters, you find that those kingdoms that succeeded uh, were the Persians and Alexander the Great, the Greeks. And so we now have the next king, chapter 6. And this king was kindly. His courtiers were not very happy about Daniel. And so they plotted. And they worked upon this scheme that the king was supposed to be absolute in dominion, or if not the king, yet the laws of the Medes and Persians cannot be broken. So they went with that in their mind. They said, now, O king, we want you to make a decree that anybody who prays to any god, save to thee, O king, he should be put to a den of lions. Well, it's very nice to be told by your courtiers that um, you're like a little god. There are a good many little tin gods today, not exactly the same kind, you know. You remember the words? Poor puny man dressed up in a little brief authority cut such antics before high heaven as to make angels weep. Somebody who lived in Stratford and Avon said that and it was very true. Diotrephes spirit is not only belonging to one age but belongs to all. And here, he made the decree. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians which altereth not. And of course, Daniel, he wasn't with the three who were cast into the burning fiery furnace, but here he's going to have his own special test. He prays to God three times a day just as before. And then he's apprehended. The king is reminded that he can't break his law. And the king is very worried. He had a restless night. And early in the morning that king, he comes to the den of lions. And he says, Then the king commanded, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. Now the king spake and said unto Daniel, Thy God, whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. He didn't say, I don't know what's going to happen to you. He's another heathen king. He will deliver thee. And the stone was brought and it was sealed. Notice the seal. 
And the king sealed it with his own signet, and with the signet of his lords, that the purpose might not be changed concerning Daniel. They've got him, haven't they? But all the stones and all the signets and all the seals can never stop God. There was another occasion when a more mighty person, a more wonderful person, was sealed in a stone set. You remember, Pilate said to the high priests and the enemies of Christ when they buried the Saviour, he said, make it as sure as you can, and I have a feeling you thought you are not going to do it. They put the Roman guard round, but when they opened that, went to that tomb, the stone was gone, the seal was broken, and the Lord was risen. Now here's this man, he puts the seal on, and then says in verse 18, And the king went to his palace, and passed the night fasting. Neither were instruments of music brought before him, and his sleep went from him. That's a good king, isn't it? This is not a callous person. Then the king arose very early in the morning. He didn't used to get up so early, you see, but this time he couldn't wait. And went into haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. The king spake and said to Daniel, Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God, whom thou servest continually, able to deliver thee from the lions? Then said Daniel unto the king, O king, live forever. My God hath sent his angel, and hath shut the lions' mouths, and they have not hurt me, for as much as before him innocency was found in me, also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt. Then was the king exceeding glad. And so on. Now that king makes a proclamation, very much like Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 26. Oh, verse 25. Then King Darius wrote unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied unto you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. And if you will read the opening verses of the book of Ezra, you'll find that decree is printed in the first chapter of Ezra, giving Ezra the right to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. That's how God works. And so we have a den of lions and he delivereth, as this man said. He hath delivered Daniel. Well now, at the end of the book of Daniel, we have in chapters 11 and 12, the whole world like a den of wild beasts. The pictures that are given of the nations that are going to rule the earth are beasts, fierce beasts, lion, bear, leopards, tearing one another, and again, the emphasis upon the fact that the book was sealed, same word used as sealing the stone, and then all the people shall be delivered. I think perhaps we better look at chapter 12, just to finish this. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince that standeth for the children of thy people. Michael is the archangel, and that links this with 1 Thessalonians 4, that makes it utterly impossible that 1 Thessalonians 4 can be the hope of the church of the mystery. So this is to do with the book of Daniel. You see why I'm giving you, as far as I can, the Old Testament background first, so that you shall have it first hand. Whenever Michael stands up, the archangel is related to Israel and Israel's hopes. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even at that same time, so that must be the same time of trouble that's so described in the book of Revelation and Matthew. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, 
every one that should be found written in the book. So there's a deliverance. So the historic story ends up with deliverance from a den of lions. And the prophetic ends up with a deliverance from something even worse than the den of lions. And then we have the emphasis upon the word seal. Verse 4. But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end. Now this is not to seal it in order to prevent someone breaking in or being taken. This is to seal it up. So we may now say, Daniel is prophecy sealed. The book of the Revelation is the seal broken. And the two books must be always considered together. Any person who attempts to explain the book of the Revelation without a fairly comprehensive knowledge of the book of Daniel is simply going to be a misleader. And then on top of that, he ought to have a fairly wide knowledge of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, or would you better start from Genesis and go right through till you get to the Revelation before you dare say you've got enough at your finger ends to interpret the types, the signs and the shadows with which that book is filled. Well, I'd hoped, after having gone over that background, to have given an outline of the image of Daniel 2, and then to explain some of the problems of Daniel 9. What a hope. One thing about it, we can be sure of this, that when we open this book, we've got depths and heights, we've got treasures beyond dreams, and it will beat us every time. Thank God for that. For the man who says he knows all about it, and doesn't need to look at it the second time, has, I think, got a very limited vision of the book, and a very extraordinary vision of himself. Now we just leave it there. We've got two more Old Testament backgrounds before we come into the new. We've got the visions of Zechariah to consider and the last book of the prophets, Malachi. And then I trust that we shall be prepared for opening the New Testament and reading without other people's spectacles the various aspects and phases of the second coming of Christ which we find in the books of the New Testament.